This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, the government episode. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number 35, dated December 3rd in the year of our Lord, 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. In this special episode, we'll be discussing the role the government plays in the life of a Christian. We will discuss placing our faith in government. Only God can give assurance in the matters Christians truly care about. If that isn't enough for us, an ineffectual government is the least of our worries. We will discuss Epitaph by Mary Doria Russell. There is the white herb who played by the rules and lost, and the white herb who broke the rules and won. Which one is your hero? We will discuss the impeachment process and why people seem to be pursuing an impossible goal. Turns out so-called pointless fights say more about the fighter than the cause. We will discuss Council of Verona, in which the Montague and Capulet clans fight for control. Where the Romeo and Juliet wind up together is only part of the story. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. I've been told for more than half a century now that the United States government and the Constitution that undergirds it is put in place to guarantee our rights, including and particularly our rights as Christians. Our right to free speech, free practice of religion, free assembly, etc., etc., life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, all that. That this is guaranteed by our government. And for more than half a century, that has been a lie. In fact, it's been a lie for 250 years almost now. I'm not saying we didn't try. I'm not saying that government has not made good efforts and made good strides and done as well or better than a lot of other governments that have existed among human beings. But as far as giving us some kind of assurance, uh, an, a promise that rights will be pursued and rights will be achieved and rights will be upheld, that's nonsense. And we all know that it's nonsense. Certain parts of our community may feel more afflicted than others, and probably do. But I think all of us realize that our rights are infringed upon, my go so far as even to say on a regular basis. It's not because government is specially flawed or that the people in it are corrupt or anything. It's that we're trusting in human beings. And yes, government is given to us by God for noble purposes, and we certainly should empower government to pursue those purposes as much as possible. And we celebrate when it achieves these purposes. But assurances come from something beyond human beings. God is the one who offers assurances. And the assurances that God offers us with regard to political matters, physical matters, carnal matters, are probably not going to be the assurances that we want to hear about. God does not promise us freedom from affliction, freedom from persecution, free exercise of religion. In fact, he more or less promises the opposite. All those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, the text says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Jesus upholds the one who is persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the, the, if not the goal, at least it's the accepted reality that godly people are, in fact, going to suffer. That's the assurance. 
Now, we're not necessarily happy about that. I'm not asking you to be happy about that. But we do need to find some contentment here. We need to quit acting like the world is broken when things go poorly for us, when our government fails us. We need to be emphasizing eternal kind of things, spiritual kind of things, rather than carnal things. I'm glad to have the government's help, however it may be offered, with regard to spiritual things. But that's not where my confidence is. And the success or failure of government has nothing to do with my faith. I'm going to be trusting in God and listening listening for his assurances. And he does offer them, by the way. I'll refer you to Isaiah 41, for instance, in verse number 8 and following. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the end of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said, you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Going through verse number 10 there. That promise that's given to the people of God in ancient times is the same promise that God offers us in the church. And it comes with the same stipulations, it comes with the same provisos, the same exceptions, if you will. This is not an assurance that God's people are never going to suffer because they did suffer. Oftentimes suffering because of what they did wrong and sometimes suffering simply because we're living in an imperfect world. That's the way it is with us also. But we can have confidence that this invisible hand of God is real and that he is in fact lifting us up and nestling us under his wings, as it were, giving us confidence, giving us assurance for the future. We may have to wait, as the text says in Psalm 27, verse 14, and other places, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Have this confidence that he is watching out for you, that he will protect you, that he will guide you in the way that he sees fit. Now, that may not be the way that you see fit, and that's where faith comes in. And, and let me provide a bit of a twist of lime here. It may be that we talk a good game about protecting our rights as individuals, our, our religious liberty and, and such as that. But is it fair to say that as often as not, when we really get angry with government, when we really get upset, it's not for those things at all. It's because the, the tax policy is improper or because there's no unity on a health care plan or because the government is messing up with uh, education or not messing with it enough or whatever it happens to be, that justice is not being served in the, in the halls of justice. We get upset not necessarily about things that even tangentially touch on matters of faith. They're matters of the flesh and they are only matters of the flesh. And I'm not suggesting those things are irrelevant to our existence here. They're central to our existence here, but they are fleshly. And we need to find a way, regardless of how well or how poorly government takes care of our flesh, to look past such things, to find contentment in every circumstance. Paul said that from prison in Philippians 4 verse 11. I'm not in prison right now. You're probably not either. This assurance, this confidence transcends such things. Trusting in God allows us, whether God is blessing us or taking things away. As Job says, Job 1, verse 20 and 21, naked I came into this world, naked I'll, I'll return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all things, we are able to praise him because the things that we really want, he gives us absolute and total assurance of. Something that government cannot do. Government's not designed to do it. If we have enough faith to look to God and to trust in him and his care and his promises, that's going to be where we find our confidence. That's going to be how we get from day to day in a difficult and challenging and sometimes punishing world. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching.
This is what I've been reading. More than a hundred years after the fact, no one will ever know for sure exactly what happened on that fateful day in Tombstone, Arizona, when Wyatt Earp and his two brothers, along with their friend Doc Holliday, went to confront the so-called cowboys who were carrying weapons illegally within the city limits of Tombstone to try to get them to disarm. At some point, guns were fired, more guns were fired, and after about 30 seconds or so of chaos, there were dead bodies and injured lawmen and others running for cover. And Wyatt Earp was left to deal with the legacy that had resulted from that. Wyatt Earp considered himself on that particular occasion a duly deputized, duly appointed enforcer of the law. And that's what he was going to do. He was going to do the right thing, his appointed duty. And the consequences of it, as is told in the story, Epitaph, uh, novel of the OK Corral by Mary Doria Russell, her, pers her perspective anyway, and the perspective of most people looking back on it now, is that he was trying to do the right thing. He was trying to be a law enforcement officer when the law was being broken. And, of course, it went horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, everybody would acknowledge that, regardless of which position you took on that. This was not supposed to be a life-ending situation or even a life-imperiling situation. But it went poorly. And now we're dealing with the aftermath. And the aftermath consisted largely of the Cowboys taking their revenge on the Earp Boys, uh, among other things, shooting Morgan Earp in the back and killing him while he was shooting pool. And Wyatt Earp decided that times called for a different approach. Instead of being the enforcer of the law against the outlaws, he became an outlaw. Uh, he was, as the story goes anyway, People knew perfectly well what he was doing. The people who sided with him before doing things the up and up way wasn't working and never was going to work. It was impossible because of alliances, political uh, infightings and, and bias in the media and all that. It's a really pretty modern story when you think about it. Justice was never going to be served in a conventional way. So he went out to pursue his own justice and did so and uh, slaughtered men ruthlessly. So it's kind of a weird twist. You do the right thing in the right way and it works poorly. You do the wrong thing and it works great. Does the end justify the means? That's really the story that we always find ourselves coming back to. Is it appropriate for us to take means outside the law? Is it appropriate for government itself, in fact, to turn against the law? if a good end is going to be achieved or can be reasonably expected to be achieved. I don't have an easy answer for that. I do have a Bible answer for that, though. If we find that government is not serving our interests, if we find that government is part of the problem rather than part of the solution, and many people on all kinds of different ends of the spectrum are saying this today, the Christian still has an obligation to submit. The text says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, and other places also that we're supposed to honor the king, that we're supposed to submit to government that's put in place by God for God's purposes, whether it's, con con it's actually accomplishing God's purposes or not, is really pretty much irrelevant. 
We're talking about the Roman government here, a Roman government that eventually would start killing Christians for their faith, a government that at best was passive and certainly not supportive of the Christian faith. And yet Peter tells people to submit to the government that would eventually cut his head off or crucify him, rather, according to tradition. That may not be the answer that you're looking for, but that is the answer that people of faith are able to accept. If government is failing us, God does not fail us. So what we do is the best we can do under unfortunate circumstances and trust that God is going to work all this out. He brought down other evil governments. He brought down other evil dictatorships. God takes care of these things in his time and in his way. Maybe not in your way. Maybe not in your time. But that's where faith comes in. Now, there's a twist to this. What happens with us from the outside? When we see government or government officials or or powers outside the government, whatever, intervening in a, what we might say is an illegal way, an inappropriate way, but they're getting the job done. This is the vigilante argument. This is the Batman argument, right? All the t-shirts, you know, you see in the, in the bookstores, you know, be yourself unless you can be Batman, in which case you need always be Batman. Well, is that true? Is there some truth to that? Is it appropriate for us to look the other way when good is being accomplished by good people, at least as we may define them, as good, being done in an inappropriate way, uh, an illegal way, in fact? Is it good to root for the good guys when they're acting like the bad guys? And again, the question has to come back, no. And it's, it's unsatisfying to us because lots of times we see more good in these people than we do in the people who supposedly are the vessels for righteousness and the vessels for, for justice in the world. But we have a consistent policy laid out for us in Scripture that we are supposed to, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's where we need to be putting our mind. We need to be putting our mind on holy and righteous and noble things. And that may seem incredibly unsatisfying in the short term. It may be incredibly unsatisfying in the short term. But again, we're not living in the short term, are we? We're living for heaven. And everything that we do and everything that we value and everything that we pursue in this life is a reflection of who we want to be. And so we find ourselves looking down the barrel of a loaded gun, as it were, at the OK Corral. And we get to decide in that moment, am I going to be a child of God? Or am I just going to kind of work this out on my own and, and sort all the pieces out later? People throughout the centuries have been put in that precise position. I don't believe that I'm ever going to be in that position, and maybe not either. But history has a funny way of repeating itself. It could be that we find ourselves in ancient Rome again, and again, confronted with this opportunity to either stand for what's right and suffer consequences for it, or not. What do you truly value? Who are you at your core? Who are you going to be to, to decide to be in that critical 30 seconds? Ask yourself the question, give yourself an honest answer, and then measure it according to what the Bible says should be your answer, and see how we measure up. I hope and pray that we can be noble enough to always value good things in ourselves, in our government, in our neighbors, in the church, even if it comes at a steep price, because I assure you, there will come a time when it will come at an extremely steep price. Anyway, that's what I've been reading.
this is what I've been hearing. When and why is a fight that is doomed to fail still worth fighting? That is a question that is brought up a lot in political circles these days, it seems like, with regard to President Trump. Whether you're talking about one side of the issue and quote-unquote draining the swamp, trying to get rid of all the, the ugliness and corruption that supposedly is out there behind the scenes and the halls of government, or whether you're tra- talking about impeaching and removing a quote-unquote fascist and racist and et cetera, et cetera, who does not deserve to be in office. Regardless of which end of the political spectrum you come down on, and I try very hard to avoid being political in this space, I'm going to continue to be uh, of that mind. I'm not going to get political here today. But regardless of where you are, frustration sets in when it becomes obvious that we are taking sand off a beach, when it's, it's impossible to have any hope of actual long-term permanent success with regard to a particular endeavor. And I want to talk about that for a little bit and uh, hopefully not get terribly, terribly cynical about this because we are engaged in this same kind of warfare and we can become discouraged. We can become overwhelmed, in fact, at the idea of trying to make a difference in Satan's world. And in a long-term sense, we're not going to. In a long-term sense, we have fought and lost this culture war, this battle for, for souls ever since the Garden of Eden. And such will continue to be the case. We're not trying to convert everybody. We are trying to do the best that we can under the circumstances, fighting the good fight of faith, holding on to our souls and, and trying to encourage other people to take hold of theirs as well. Now, what do we do when it becomes obvious that we are casting pearls before swine? What happens when it becomes obvious that there is no chance of success? Why is it that people embroiled in these kind of fights continue to fight? And I think the impeachment proceedings, uh, without getting too terribly on the, fa- on the side of or against the side of the Democrats here, the impeachment proceedings are bringing out a few different motivations that may be behind these kind of actions. And you can decide for yourself which motive you want to uh, assign to, to the various parties here. But it strikes me that several things may be at view here. There are some people who like playing the martyr. There are some people who love causes that will fail. They like to be seen as the, the Don Quixote character, tilting at windmills. Because if you choose a cause that cannot possibly succeed, you also cannot be held accountable for failures. That's kind of the, the cool thing about that. Everybody knew you were going to fail, so you're not accountable for any kind of results. That can be a very freeing sort of thing, and it can empower you to just wail away in the dark, not really caring at all about the, about the cause, but rather simply putting on like you are the one who is being oppressed. There are plenty of martyrs, legitimate martyrs in the Bible, and I hope that we don't, don't put them in this same kind of category. There are people who genuinely commit themselves to the faith, but there are also others who don't. They just like the spotlight. They just like attention. Sometimes that's going on. 
There are other people who have a, a hidden agenda, and maybe it's not even all that hidden. They are fighting this cause so as to put themselves in a position to fight something else. But there is a, a self-promotion thing going on. They are actually putting themselves in position where they can reap the benefits of this fight in a sideways sort of way. First Timothy chapter 6 and verses 3 and following talk about those ones who will see godliness as a means of gain. That they create these fights, create these, these uh, struggle, struggles and, and, and issues among brethren. Unnecessarily so, so that they can be important, so that they can rise to the top, as it were, and be the, the, the voice of wisdom and the voice of reason and the voice of experience, whatever, the loudest voice, basically, so that they can be the important ones. Paul has horrible, horrible things to say about people who have that kind of attitude, and we should have horrible things to say about those people also. Let's not get confused about our, what our tactic actually is, what our task actually is. And there are others, the Jeremiah's of the world, who engage in these fights because it's the right thing to do, because they are idealistic. And we see Isaiah, we see Hosea, we see uh, over and over again in the prophets, God telling them, go out and do the work. And by the way, you're going to fail at this. They're not going to listen to you. I want you to go do it anyway. And they do this. Ezekiel, one of my favorites, the same kind of thing. You're going to bust your head up against a wall trying to convince these people of what's right. And they're not going to listen. They're not going to want to listen. But you do the do it anyway. You fight the good fight anyway. And I hope that in the Christian fight, this is where we find ourselves. That we are not seeing ourselves as, as martyrs. We're not victims somehow. We're not in this for personal gain. We're not uh, trying to be the, the, the radical types who, who make huge noise and such just so that they can be seen making huge noise. What we need to be is Christian soldiers. We need to be the ones who will fight the good fight, and suffer the consequences because there are going to be consequences. And maybe our attitude toward the consequences, toward the aftermath, is the best way for us to measure how we're doing in this, what our actual motives are. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may, result, also re you may rejoice with exultation. If we are prepared to accept the consequences that come with failure, if we know that fighting the good fight is going to cause problems for us and we continue to fight anyway, we accept these consequences. We don't whine about it. We don't fuss about it. We don't act like we're some kind of anomaly. That is an indication that we are, in fact, on the side of the angels, that we are, in fact, doing God's things in God's way for God's purposes. This is the nobility that God calls for us to have in spiritual matters. Not self-serving, God-serving. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's Word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. You don't have to be a fan of Romeo and Juliet to enjoy Council of Verona. Doesn't hurt. I've never especially been a big fan of the, the Shakespeare play upon which this game is based. But it is interesting to watch the Capulets and the Montagues duke it out in the, the councils of Verona to see who's going to be in power. 
the way that it works basically is you have two families that are prominent in Verona society. You have the Capulets and the Montagues. And you also have various ones who are tangentially allied with them. And you have others that are neutral. And these alliances are based on color. There's the, the red faction and there's the blue faction. And you are dealt a hand of cards. You draft, basically, a hand of cards. And with these cards, you try to affect the politics. You may put some people on the council. You may put some people in exile. Your, your people may have special powers where you're able to move them from here to there. And then here's the twist to it. You get to place a wager, essentially. A five-point wager, a three-point wager, a zero-point wager to kind of fake people out, perhaps. On some of these characters to determine how well you predict things are going to turn out. The Montagues are going to wind up in power. Or the Capulets are going to wind up in power. Or Romeo and Juliet are going to wind up together. Or in, in some other... Fashion, the neutrals are going to dominate, or it's going to be a balance of power. There are various ways that you can project how things are going to turn out. And uh, you can either be right or be wrong in all of this. And the one who accumulates the most points in predicting how things are going to turn out winds up being the winner. It's kind of an interesting strategy here because you can base your entire strategies. For instance, I have a handful of Capulets. Okay, I want the Capulets to be in power. And before too long, you realize. That's not going to happen. It might be easier for me to fake like I am betting on the Capulets and get everybody to support that. But in reality, I'm trying to pursue a neutral strategy or or keep Romeo and Juliet separate or whatever it happens to be. Basically, what it boils down to is a, a hidden information kind of game. And it's really a lot of fun. A very, very short playing game. If you can wind up with a copy of it, I think you'll you'll do well. What we're basically looking at here is how government works in a rather twisted, you know, microcosm kind of way. It's all about personal agendas. It's all about flexible ethics. It's all about uh, fighting and being basically inevitable. There are going to be the, the, the Montagues and the Capulets. There are going to be the Crips and the Bloods. There are going to be the, the Republicans and Democrats, whatever. There, there's always going to be this fighting. All of it regardless of which place you come down on, whether you consider yourself left-wing, right-wing, middle-wing, whatever. All of these factors have to do with this life. All of these factors have to do with how best to accomplish earthly goals. And so it's not necessarily surprising when we see earthly tactics, even sinful tactics, being employed in pursuit of these things. That's, that's the way it is. Of course, there's going to be lying. Of course, there's going to be sabotage. There's going to be uh, even... Poison and and uh, antidotes being being given. People are going to kill one another. It's government's pretty serious business sometimes. We as Christians, I would like to think, are above a lot of that, if not all of that. We realize that the difficulties, the hardships, the squabbling that happens in this life is earthly and only earthly. And, and I I cringe when I see politics taking hold and taking root in the hearts of Christians. I'm not saying you shouldn't be political or that, that there's anything wrong with being politically active. But when this becomes our key to success, when this becomes our goal, if we just live to the next election, if we can just get our people in power, if we can just, maybe we'll make some changes. And we have good objectives and good goals and, and all of that's fine. But remember through all of this that we are children of the king, the spiritual king, the heavenly king. This is where our true allegiance lies. 
And the more earthly we get in our approach to things, the more carnal we get in our approach to things, the more inevitable these squabblings and infightings are going to become. James says in verse number one of chapter four, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the, so, uh, the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. He's mentioned earlier these ones who have the wisdom that's not from above, chapter three, verse uh, 15, the earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. That is the power that pushes sinful people in sinful directions to accomplish their goals, which may or may not be sinful. And our objective has to remain pure. We have to be above such things. As he goes on to say in verse number six, God gives a, a greater grace. And I love that expression there. God is able to give us things that we cannot possibly get for ourselves. No matter how strong our political affiliations may be, no matter what our tactics, no matter how deceitful we may get, we will never be able to achieve for us the grace that God is giving to us in spiritual realms. So if we can back up a little bit from all the rancor and trust that he is taking care of all the truly important things, then we can have confidence that whatever difficulties, whatever hardships we may have in this life are manageable and overcomable, in fact. If we will, in fact, do as he says, submit to him, allow him to rule, and then accept the consequences for that and rejoice in the blessings that come from that. There's no failure in God's government. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven, and our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to this podcast, and give a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things, and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you'll find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 Pages a Week, and Citizen of Heaven. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, The Citizen of Heaven, signing off.